This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I am the author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You and a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to parents and teachers and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud. I'll I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast. A digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rubinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to Buoyancy Digital at BuoyancyDigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Happy to step <laughs> on your toes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, welcome to a live show <laughs> where we didn't talk about well, what we were going to do before we started. <laughs> live, live is a is a sort of generous description. <laughs> anyway, so what's up with you these days? Well, uh, yesterday I did a presentation to a church group about sexting and used uh, some of the information we've gleaned from this program, uh, Jeff Temple and Tessa Stuckey specifically, um, 
and just had a great time uh, talking with people about this. And what is so fascinating to me is that um, this is happening even in churches where it seems like, you know, everybody appears to be perfect and is doing everything that they should. There's still challenges, man. And it's not something that anybody is immune from. So, um, you know, it was it was good to talk to them. Good to hear some of the stories that they were experiencing and get some some different perspective on what challenges they're facing. And uh, it was a good, good conversation. Glad that I was able to do it and had a really good time doing it as well. Um, what about you? You've had some good stuff happening too. Yeah, no, it's it's been nice. And and by the way, first of all, compliments on reaching out to the church community because I think that the work that we're doing is a message that's powerful for all of these organizations, regardless yeah. of you know what their particular perspective may be. As you alluded to, uh, the past week I've had a chance to start a webinar series with the Georgia Professional uh, Standards Commission. And the first was a webinar that I presented last week on social media and educators talking about some of the same risks that we've discussed on this program with a bunch of different people. And on Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, in any case, (laughs) in this coming week, I am moderating a panel discussion with three educational leaders from Georgia about these same issues. We've got someone from the university level who's been researching these concerns. Uh, We have an HR leader from a school district who, of course, has to worry about social media usage in terms of their hiring. And then we've got someone who's working in a middle school, both as a teacher and as a coach. And he's going to have some great things to say about the rules that he lays down for um, his students, his expectations for their behavior and their standards when when they're a member of his team, and so on. It's it's really good stuff. And one of the nice things about this, and we'll have to talk about it, is that I sincerely suspect that there are good future potential guests for the podcast showing mm-hmm. up on these programs. Yes. Well, the cool thing is, is that after the meeting was over, one of the women in the church came up to me and um, she has a cybersecurity firm that does consulting all around the nation that is based here in Spokane where I'm at. And so I'm looking forward to reaching out to her uh, later today and I'm sure she's going to be a guest. And um, after I told her about the center for cyber ethics, the um, nonprofit that you and I are founding, um, she was like, well, we definitely need to connect. So that was pretty cool to, to see that and to, um, to make a connection there. So pretty exciting stuff happening. So it's, it's also good to get additional guests for the show and get different perspectives on what people are seeing out there. Well, despite the amount of work that's required to do this, I'm really excited <laughs> about talking with you and our guests about that nonprofit initiative, because I think that has the potential to really expand the scope of the work we can do with this, and I'm excited by it. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing that we have created is a... Um, you wrote an awesome book last year called Raising Cyberethical Kids that um, is in ebook form that people can check out. But then we also create an audio course to go along with that. Um, and it's about creating a family acceptable use policy. And so you can get that by going to link.cybertraps.com slash RCK underscore audio course. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes at cybertraps.com. 
you can just go to cybertraps.com and get that and and we'll be sure to share that with you but that was um when when you buy that or when you go to look at the page for it there are audio samples of of different parts of it and we had a great discussion about that and there's some humor in there there's some seriousness in there but most importantly there's some strategies for creating a family acceptable use policy that i think are just super important so definitely something that we want people to to check out and and see it and um after um after one principal bought it she wanted to share it with her whole community uh which is pretty exciting too so um it's good for i'm glad to hear this message is getting out there and that people are listening and uh thank you to all of you who are watching and listening that to this right now it's it's pretty exciting to be a part of it well, it is. And, and I'm excited to see the um, use of different media for the work that we're doing. So one of the things I'm excited about is that we'll be able to build on the audio course for raising cyberethical kids by um, offering, for instance, a course that deals specifically with the conversation prompts that are useful mm -hmm. for different ages as kids are growing up. And then potentially um, taking a look at cyber traps for expecting moms and dads or even cyber traps for educators and figuring out ways to put some of that material into a podcast form that you know gives people just a different alternative for how to digest it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well let's get into our topic today, uh which is social media is not ed tech and I think that this is a a great conversation. I'm excited about uh talking about this because we think social media sometimes is ed tech, but let me tell you, it is not. Right. Well, the funny thing, of course, Jethro, is that we are using social media to educate educators. So, yeah. you know, we don't want to get too down on social media here. There's a <laughs> lot of potential. There's a lot of potential value um, for social media. And there's also an intrinsic value, as you know, as a principal, in having educators find creative ways to present material to students, to keep students engaged. It's, it, it's a constant challenge. And social media in all of its forms, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, even Facebook, which we love to dump on for a bunch of yeah. privacy reasons, even Facebook can be used in very powerful ways. One of the things, um, you know, I'd certainly love to hear your stories about educators in your buildings who figured out good ways to do this. But then we have a couple of, I think, really cool recent examples to throw out to people as well. Yeah, well, I think we should start by highlighting just just three popular educators on social media that we would just like to say, you know, so there's Garrett Talcott, who's at Vivid Michael on TikTok. There's Emmanuel Robinson at Rob's Robbins on uh, Twitter and uh, underscore Manny Moves on Instagram. And then Phil Cook, who we've referenced before, Chem Teacher Phil on TikTok. And so these are just three people who are out there doing stuff, which is, um, you know, exciting to see and and good to see that they're finding a way to teach things in a in a entertaining and engaging way. And I think back to when I was a kid, Bill Nye, the science guy, whenever we got to watch <laughs> Bill Nye in my science classroom, it was just awesome. So we wanted, you know that having engaging content that is, um, uh, who was it? Uh, oh, in our episode coming out this week with Dr. Wendy Oliver, she talks about creating commercially commercial level um, content for school. A lot of us don't have the ability 
to do that. And, and this is one of those ways that you can bring some of that in when appropriate and when done with wisdom that you can bring some of that stuff into the classroom. And these, these three people are just given a good example of how, how to do some of that. Well, in the show notes, we've got links to some articles that talk about the work that they've done and give you examples of how they're using social media to get their message across. <laughs> you know, I have to laugh though, Jethro, to put things in a frame of reference. The kind of ed tech that I was exposed to was Walter Cronkite doing You Are There you know, on <laughs> television. <laughs> so, I don't yeah, even know I go what that back. is. I, that's, that's so sad and so predictable. Um, yeah, no, actually as a spinoff from his terrific newscast, um, and this is seriously back in the black and white days, or at least it was black and white days for my family. Um, Walter Cronkite would recreate various historical events with a, you know, very serious historical perspective. And the tagline was, you are there. I'll never forget the <laughs> wonderful yeah. gravelly intonation. But anyway, Things change. Um, I think Walter Cronkite would have a blast on social media, much like Dan Rather is. Um, but the thing that you know we want to highlight here are two things. Number one, educators themselves have an ongoing ethical responsibility to think about how they use social media, both in terms of the information that they're um, providing with respect to their students that can get out into the world, and then also, honestly, I think the ethical impact, Jethro, on them as teachers. I mean, one of the things that is always at the back edge of use of social media is the quote-unquote potential of going viral, right? When you're getting hundreds and thousands and even millions of views. And the thing that people are, are steadily realizing is that those views can be monetized. So then the question becomes, are you using social media to further your pedagogical goals or are you using it to generate ad clicks and revenue? And as a matter of fact, you know, not surprisingly, given the salaries in parts of the country, you know, generating a little extra money using social media is a pretty attractive idea for teachers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, almost every teacher has a second job and especially teachers who have a spouse who's a stay-at-home parent, um, they they all do. And I remember my first uh, <clears throat> first year of teaching, I was a teacher. I was also doing my graduate program. I was also taking additional education classes, and I had a, another job as a um, as a donut delivery man. Can believe that <laughs> that I well, did before wholesome, school. Right? <laughs> yeah, get it. And the second job that I had, or the third job, I should say, was I was a writer for a website online. And looking back, I don't know how I managed to do all that stuff, but I needed to just to make ends meet. And sure. some people, especially if they're successful on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, they can start monetizing those things and can make significantly more salary, uh, not to mention selling things on Teachers Pay Teachers. Uh, they can make significantly more money doing those things rather than just being a teacher day in and day out. Well, and, it, and we can't really, I think, touch on this topic without at least doing a drive-by reference to you know, some of the moral issues that can arise, right? Because there mm -hmm. are ways of trying to monetize yourself online, like OnlyFans.com, which raises serious questions yeah. about your role in the community. 
So again, you know, we'll put that aside for another conversation, but you know, these are the kinds of things that people really need to think about, you know, in terms of what their use of social media or online content is and and the temptations that are out there as an educator. The the second topic that we're going to touch on in much more depth though is the relationship between social media as services and educational tools and that category of, of goods and services known as ed tech specifically. Mm-hmm. So you've been in the you've been in the trenches on this, Jethro. Why don't you walk us through the intro? Yeah. So first and foremost, one of the things that we don't talk about in education very much is that those who put themselves out there are often then dismissed by their peers. And so while mm-hmm. everybody else is celebrating, what is a very common thing to happen within a school is that everybody starts disliking that person because they're getting more attention, more money or something else because of that. And so um, a lot of times when a teacher wins a teacher of the year award, everybody celebrates and is excited. But if a teacher goes and becomes an Instagram influencer, excuse me, then everybody's not quite so excited. So that's one of the, the dark little secrets of education that once you get your head up above, people try to Try to chop that off. <laughs> the so, dandelion complex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think it's important to start by just defining what is ed tech specifically. And we're saying that ed tech is a combination of IT tools and educational practices aimed at facilitating and enhancing learning. So that's that's a particular definition. And to put that in more, um, more friendly terms, it's basically software and hardware that is used to make learning happen. And so when you define that broadly, you can say just about anything can help make learning happen. Um, But ed tech specifically is, you know, things that are specifically designed for education. And that I think is the important differentiator here, that if something is designed for education, then it has different things built in. And I don't think that we can talk much about that without talking first and foremost about privacy rights for our students. So anything to add there about the definition of ed tech before we move on to that? No, I think that that's good. I mean, ed tech is, is a little bit like the weather, right? You can sort of encompass a whole bunch of stuff into that overarching term. Um, But I think the extent to which we're focusing on products and services that are specifically aimed at the educational environment and are intended to be used within the classroom or within the school building, um, that that puts some reasonable boundaries on what we're discussing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that this is an important topic is that a recent poll suggested that 92% of teachers believe that ed tech is going to have a major impact on the way they educate their students in the near future. I think we're actually already in that near future, to be honest with you, because most, I think most classrooms use some kind of technology. I mean, they have to, right? It's just, it's part of the way in which we're, well, obviously during a pandemic, how how Mm -hmm. do you do, how do you educate in a pandemic without technology? You know, so that's almost self-answering, but I think that that's where we start to see this blurring between ed tech and social media and and other kind of non-educationally oriented uh, products. Yeah. So I, 
I think that's a good point. And let's start talking about um, some of the things you need to pay attention to. Uh, so we'll start with FERPA, which is a uh, federal law. It is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. And it says that you basically must have written permission from the parent of the eligible student in order to release any information from a student's education record. And so then that says, well, what is education record? And education record is anything that the student produces or does within the confines of the school or as a school assignment. And that is a very broad thing to have. There are ways that you can release things without consent to a very specific um, list of people that is also incredibly broad as well. So <laughs> here's specific and list. broad. That's good. Yes. <laughs> so school officials, other schools, uh, specified officials for audit or evaluation purposes, appropriate parties in connection to with financial aid to a student, organizations conducting certain studies, uh, accrediting organizations to comply with a judicial order or lawful issued subpoena. And it looks like uh, that got cut off a little bit. Um, uh, appropriate officials in cases of health and safety emergencies, uh, state and local authorities within a juvenile ju justice system pursuant to state to state law. Um, and so there's, it's pretty specific, but there's a lot of people who could have it and um, who could have that educational record. And so it's important to just be thinking about that. One thing that is not listed on there are ed tech companies specifically. Um, and certainly what's not listed on there is social media companies. So those are two places that do not have um, specific permission to see what uh, our kids are producing. Well, and this is a real issue, right? Because um, you've got many, many schools, as I'm sure you know, putting their material onto the cloud for a variety of different purposes. So one of the questions you immediately ask is, under what authority does Google Drive have the ability to store student work? That's just one example. There are hundreds, if not thousands of others. So we, we've talked a little bit, or at least alluded to this issue of school control over data, but an equally important, if not more so, equally important issue is the potential privacy exposure of students and their confidential or personally identifying information as a result of the use of these ed tech tools that store things either quote unquote in the cloud. So by that, we're referring to a service like Google or Amazon or something like that, where there are servers storing the data, or you've got a company that is storing the information on their per personal, their corporate servers in some location and not technically in the cloud, even though they're remote to the school that's using that service. Mm -hmm. So all of this raises legitimate questions and one has to assume, and I haven't researched this in detail, but one does have to assume that the lawyers have figured out how this exchange of data can occur as part of the ed tech services. Um, but that's definitely something we should dig into a little bit at some point. Well, and that's another piece where we basically, for convenience of having the service, just agree to whatever they happen to say. And so we don't do a lot of research on um, the on privacy or, or on where the data is stored or how it's stored. And some school districts are starting to do that. And um, 
you know, James Gentry, who uh, was uh, left us a comment on the last episode we did last week. Um, he's one who has brought that up. He's an IT director in the district I previously worked for Fairbanks North Star Borough School District. And he um, was one of the first people I met who was really concerned about data and where things are going. And when I wanted to um, wanted to adopt something, then the question was, well, where is this information going to be stored? And that's a good question to be asking and something that everybody needs to ask as well. Um, well, and this, if, if I may, Jethro, this might be a good opportunity just to give a quick shout out to the student student data privacy consortium, which is a collection of organizations and school districts and end users that are trying to develop best practices with respect to the handling of student information coming out of schools. So there are some folks beginning to really do this work or you know fairly well along. But I think as much as we're concerned about the potential privacy implications of ed tech, those pale in comparison to the privacy concerns when you're dealing with social media. Sorry, hit the wrong button. And that is certainly the key that if you are, if you are you, oh, come on, Jethro, amateur hour over here. If you are <laughs> using social media with your, in, in your classroom with your students or asking them to do things, you're opening them up to something that is is very much against what the law intends, which is to keep their educational record um, private to them as much as possible. And you're, you're, you know, I think it's valuable for kids to create things online. And I'm glad to have this discussion because many years ago in the early 2000s, I was I was teaching kids to blog on the internet as a way of writing. And I treated that differently because I didn't call that. I, I wouldn't say that that was an educational record because I wasn't really collecting it for me. I was using it as an example of what was of what their writing style was and their writing skills. And, and to me, it was a different approach. And if they didn't want to write a blog, I just certainly did not force them to. But what I found was that they really enjoyed getting their comments out there and sharing their thoughts and beliefs with other people. And that was important to them. Well, and that totally makes sense. I mean, look, you know, we are in many ways, no different from your students, right? We really like getting this material out into the world. We love the feedback that we get from people. If, by the way, anyone listening to this has feedback, go to our questions and feedback page on cybertraps.com. So that that is a completely normal impulse. The, the concern that we're flagging here, which totally makes sense, I hope, to people, is that this there is always a potential for the loss of control over certain information, right? And if you were teaching your kids blogging, you know, in the relatively early days of the blogosphere, the blogging world, you know, the chances of them being hassled was probably pretty low. But if you've got kids setting up a Twitter account to talk about different issues or a class Pinterest page, the, the sad reality is that it's a much different environment than it was probably 10 or 12 years ago when those kids were first going online. And that's that's one thing, but that's wholly separate from the issue of an educator 
using social media and either thoughtlessly or accidentally disclosing personal identifying information of a student. You know, the classic example is teacher takes a great photo of kids doing projects in the classroom and without noticing some kid has his name and grade on some project in the photo. And one of the things, by the way, that I constantly point out to people is that a photo that you took with a smartphone eight years ago is much fuzzier than a photo you take today, you know, because the number of megapixels go up every single year. And that means that these photos are getting sharper, they're easy to easier to read, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's Not a lot to mention of, they have GPS data in them. Well, I was gonna say, right, EXIF data, which is part of the metadata that's stored in most cell phone or smartphone photos. Now we can do a whole show on turning that stuff off, but <laughs> that would probably have a pretty small listenership. But in any case, the 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 care here that is needed is um, pretty high. And I think, you know, obviously, Jethro, in terms of administrators, having conversations with your teachers about these risks and what school policies are is really important. Well, let me share an actual example where we had a mom and dad who were divorced and were estranged from each other. And the, uh, the mom was not allowed to know what school her kids were enrolled in um, because of unhealthy issues there in the family. And so mom was not allowed to know what school they went to. She had no, uh, no uh, interest in their educational record uh, interest in the legal sense, not in a, personal sense, right? So she she was not allowed to be involved in any of those decisions. And so uh, teachers had, and the dad was very clear, my kids cannot have their pictures on social media. They cannot have their work posted on social media. None of that is allowed because if mom finds out what school they're at, it is very possible that we will have to change schools. So mm -hmm. that just can't happen. And that's a very extreme example, but that perfectly displays what the issues are. And it's not like that happened at every school that I was at, um, but it did happen at the majority of the schools that I was at. And it's, you've got to recognize that those are issues that could be out there and parents may not be coming forward and demanding it. And so you still have to take into consideration what the student privacy rights are as well. And, and I think I mentioned last time, I mean, I get in trouble all the time about this stuff because I'm not, I'm not perfect at it. And, um, and that's something that I'm still continuing to learn. So it's not like I've never made a mistake here or that I'm perfect at it, but I've, I've gone up to and crossed the line enough that I've been corrected and said, this is what you need to do in the future. So that's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about it. It's, it's an important takeaway for people. And I think that, you know, it, it should not come as a huge shock to people that this is, this is a, fairly extensive real world concern as people get older and they leave school. Mm -hmm. And one of the projects in the hopper is cyber traps, basically for people in relationships. I'm, I'm still working on the title, but one of the things to um, <laughs> That's a good kick around <laughs> with that. No, no, no. I've got a couple of ideas, but <laughs> in any case, one of the, one of the things that absolutely needs to be covered is the way in which technology can be used to harass and stalk people. 
And mm -hmm. even beyond that, and this is where things really start to get black mirror on us, is the fact that couples who are installing quote unquote smart devices are at risk when they separate in terms of one person retaining control or access to those smart devices and using them to, you know, there's the old movie, the gas, you know, gaslighting. Um, I don't know if that was the actual title of the film, but it comes from the, the concept of gaslighting comes from that, you know, where someone is changing literally the intensity of the gas flame in the living room and then telling his spouse, no, that's the way it always was. Well, you can use these smart devices now to play with temperature or to cause lights to go on and off. It's, it's really pretty creepy. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get into some of the, uh, the benefits. I mean, this is this, a lot of these things should be pretty obvious, but for example, benefits for students in using educational technology is they have increased collaboration, 24 seven access. You can flip the classroom, personalizing the educational experience you can have attention grabbing lessons and then we'll get to the benefits for teachers in just a second. But those are all, you know, good things to have available <laughs> for students to be able to learn. And well, it, none of them are bad at face value. Right. And, and I think if we step back, right, Jethro, and, and, and talk about this in the broader context, we've discussed the ways in which education needs to change and adapt mm -hmm to new circumstances. Obviously, we've gotten a crash course on that in the past year, but this was happening anyway. I mean, technology yeah. was going to bring some of these changes to the schools and to the classrooms, even if there wasn't a pandemic, this just sped it up. So, mm -hmm. you know, for instance, you know, this dynamic, kids sometimes learn better at different times. So having constant access to the material is useful. Um, giving students more uh, autonomy and more um, independence in terms of what they learn and what they bring to the classroom themselves is very powerful. These aren't, as, you're, as you say, these are not all bad things. Yeah. And, you know, being able to have lessons that grab the kids' attention more and having personalized educational experiences, I mean, that's definitely something that is really valuable. Um, as we talk about the benefits for teachers, um, there's some of these things that I, I don't necessarily agree with, but they are beneficial. Automated grading, classroom management, paperless classrooms, eliminating guesswork and assessments. I mean, those are good things. Um, I think that if you have automated grading, then you're asking the wrong questions. Um, <laughs> I think that classroom management, I'll just say problematic for now, and I can get into a a, a soapbox about that later, but that's, those are things that, you know, they do make teachers jobs a lot easier. And I think the thing I would add to it is that it takes the teacher from having to be the fountain of all knowledge to being um, either a guide on the side, which is beneficial. They help kids find things. And the term I like to use is that they are a compass for the students. They, they don't have all the answers, but they help get kids going in the right direction. And I think that that's really where the future of education is going and, and definitely something that I would like to see more of. So that I like that phrase, a guide on the side. I hadn't heard that before. That's interesting. Um, you know, I, I would be I would be happy to um, promote the use of the term pilot. But after what happened 
<laughs> to the ship yeah. in the Suez Canal. I'm not yes, sure. Very <laughs> That's the best metaphor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, look, I I agree with you, and and you know, we exchanged some notes on this, and and I have some of the same reservations that you have, right, with respect to the quote unquote teacher benefits. I think actually, as I've thought through this, probably the top benefit that I would ascribe to all of this is the depth of resources that a teacher can quickly bring to his or her instruction with the students, right? Because Mm -hmm. the old model, again, going back to my black and white TV days, the old model is that you've got a book and the teacher works through that book. And whatever additional material the teacher brings to the classroom is pretty much a result of his or her experience or education. But the the richness of that educational process was limited, right? It was, there was only so much that could be done with that. Nowadays, we've got almost exactly the opposite problem in that we have so much potential material that the real challenge is corralling it into some kind of useful tool. Yeah. Yeah, and I we would be remiss if we didn't bring up at this point um, Audrey Water Audrey Audrey Waters. Excuse me, I don't know why I had a hard time saying that. At HackEducation.com, she is she writes about the history of the future of educational technology, hmm. and um, she has some very uh, scathing perspectives on educational technology. Which, again, we're trying to get to social media is not ed tech. But even ed tech is full of problems as well. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so that's that's part of what what we're saying here. And I'll put a link to her um, to her article, the 100 worst ed tech debacles of the decade <laughs> of 2010 to 2020, um, because there's there's some really great insights. And one of those things is thinking that um, things are going to be free or that they're going to solve all of our problems and. Um, and that's just not going to happen. What's going to solve our problems are actual human beings doing great work. And that needs to be first and foremost, in my opinion. So, you know, we could get into um, a lot more stuff with that, but we'll just kind of leave it there and, and get really to the meat of what we want to talk about, which is that social media is not ed tech first and foremost. Well, that sounds good. Let me just throw out a couple of real quick things, which tie into that point. So maybe they'll serve as a good bridge for us here. So one of the things that I constantly harp upon when I'm talking to school communities is the importance of understanding how the technology works. And this is particularly critical with respect to ed tech um, in social media, which we'll get to in a second, because if you're not fully aware of how the technology works, or if you haven't really paid attention to the trainings that your IT department has provided, then mm-hmm. there's an ongoing likelihood that the students will outpace your understanding of how that technology works or can be abused. So if we're talking about one of the benefits of EdTech for students being increased collaboration, collaboration is the optimistic, you know, sunny view of that. Yeah. Cyberbullying is the dark side of collaboration. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So there's 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 a need to be aware of how this stuff works. A great example is the chat function in Google Docs that teachers were discovering to their horror that the kids were having these long running harassing conversations on the side. And of course, it's completely silent and it 
doesn't mm-hmm. show up unless you open the chat window. So little things like that. So there's that. Um, and then I so think let me one, let me add yeah, to that ahead. real quick because it's sure. the it's the chat function within Google Docs. It's the chat function within the Google Suite, which is also a separate thing. But then it's also the comment section in the Google Doc itself. And that gives you three different places to police as the teacher to see what's really going on. And there are tools to be able to highlight and bring out those things as they happen. But again, that's another piece of um, surveillance technology that we've talked about on this program already and about the unethical use of surveilling our students. And so supervision versus surveillance, I think is an important conversation here as well. You can actually supervise your students when they're using educational technology, but you cannot supervise your students when they're using social media, because there are things that you will never be able to see. (laughs) That is sadly true. And so the last, the last response I'll, I'll toss out before we move specifically into the social media realm is this concept of um, attention grabbing, right? And we do see that as a potential benefit for ed tech because engagement is important in the classroom just as it is online. But, you know, at the same time, we have a real challenge with, um, I don't want to use ADD because that's actually a diagnosis that people uh, get sometimes, but distractibility is one that we can say is uh, applicable to most of us. And I think particularly with kids, and I remember my mother talking about this, you know, about the need to learn how to deal with boredom because boredom Mm -hmm. occurs. And one of the things about social media is that social media can't stand a bored person because a bored person is not engaged with their advertisers which means that they're not generating revenue. And we talked a lot about this last week when we did social media in the school community. So I think that this, this, there, there needs to be a balance between this concept of constant engagement and the ability to be peaceful within yourself and cope with boredom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sounds very new agey kind of California-esque, but I think that there's a real value to it. Yeah. If, if you can't be bored for any amount of time, then that's a real tragedy. And I mean, that's something that I've noticed in myself that I reach for my phone for social media or for whatever to distract me when I'm bored instead of just taking that time to think and, and be in the moment. So let's talk about a couple of things that show that social media is not ed tech. So one, it's not specifically designed for classroom use, you know, um, it, it is designed for engagement, for viral sharing, and for other things that is not engaged in, designed for a classroom. And I think that this is a really important point because if we, if we just take that first approach that there are things you do in the classroom that are different than how you do them in the real world, that's recognizing that there's a difference between those. And when you bring that stuff into the classroom, then it makes it really challenging for you to keep people on task with what it is that you are trying to do as the teacher. And, um, and that is an important part of being in the classroom that, um, that the teacher has a plan and that they know how to help the kids get there. And, uh, and it can quickly fall apart if, if those things are not in place. And, 
you know, kids can go down a hundred different rabbit holes on social media um, that can really change the the tone and the the culture of the classroom. Well, it, it strikes me, Jethro, that you know we we are exploring over the course of these podcasts the role of the educator and and the respective power balance, right, between the teacher and the students, but. At the end of the day, it is fair to say that we are paying educators as professionals to be those guides for their the students in their classroom, that that, that is the role that they have to play. And, and the problem, one of the problems with social media is that that relationship doesn't exist, right? The child mm-hmm. on social media is primarily a consumer. Obviously, some of them are also content creators. But again, in either role, they're doing these things without necessarily having any guidance from an adult about um, what are appropriate boundaries, what are issues they should be aware of. And these are all things that the educator is um, literally paid to do. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think just as a top-level discussion, that's the distinction between ed tech, which the teacher is charged with using, and social media, which, you know, is just kind of the Wild West free-for-all. Yeah, and, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the um, the privacy protections for students and families, and then there's the increased risk of misuse of information. Um, and that's something where we talked with um, Akuna Uka um, early on in the podcast. If you haven't listened to that one, you definitely need to go back where she talks specifically about the spreading of misinformation and how when um, something happens out in the world, then the kids have access to the information at the same time the teacher does, where in the past, we may have needed to like filter that information and and tell kids what's important. I mean, just last week, we had that, uh, that carjacking, which um, involved teens and a person died from that. Um, and uh, he was an immigrant to the United States. I believe his name was Anwar. And um, he, there was video of that. And that's the crazy thing is that um, on social media, you could see what actually happened. And, you know, that, that is just um, tragic. So if, if that's happening during the day and teachers are talking about this in school, um, kids are having access to that right away. And one, we don't want, like, as a teacher, you would never want to say to kids, okay, go on Twitter and <laughs> find, you know, different perspectives of this story. That in that situation would be horrible. You'd be exposing your kids to things that that they don't need to be exposed to when you can present that in a more appropriate way for their age level. Well, one of the things that that raises, actually, Jethro, is this concept of credibility, right? With respect Mm -hmm. to the sources of information. And one of the things that I have seen really stressed by the different ed tech companies that I've researched is that they are helping to sell, um, for lack of a better term, gatekeeping in terms of the information to which students are exposed. And there's some value to that. The you know, the alternative is in many ways social media where everything is just blasted at the students with a fire hose. And that can in and of itself be a lesson if the educational community is really committed 
to the teaching of critical thinking to help mm -hmm. the kids sort that out. I think one of the reasons that ed tech is proving to be so compelling is that when you've got younger kids, you know, elementary and even going into middle school, you don't want to expose them to that fire hose within the classroom. I mean, let's be realistic that they're probably seeing it outside of the classroom, but at least in terms of helping them to mature as students, that gatekeeping, that filtering is a compelling product feature. Well, and, and there's a difference between kids seeing it on their own and a teacher instructing kids to go mm. find it. And that I think Good is point. one of the pieces here about social media is not ed tech is that if you are instructed by a teacher to go find it, then that's on the teacher for, for setting you up like that. If, <laughs> if you go find it on your own, then that's on your parents for giving you access to that device um, or that's your own problem. And, and that's an issue where teachers need to be careful about that also, because if you are sending your kids to a specific site, the, there's all kinds of <laughs> trainings and conversations about what kind of sites you take kids to in school. And if you take your kids to a site that has something inappropriate on it, you are definitely going to hear about it. And, and that just cannot be overstated enough. I mean, you've, you have a very real responsibility to those kids to not expose them intentionally to something that could be harmful to them. So I would, uh, I would say that our two big takeaways in terms of this comparison between ed tech and social media is number one, student privacy and mm -hmm. protecting the information that is important to them. And then number two, creating reasonable boundaries around the information that students are exposed to. At different grade mm -hmm. levels. Yeah. And, and that has to be something that you do. It's not something that you can just blow off and say, <laughs> uh, you know, this doesn't matter all that much because, you know, it's, it's the world and we have to recognize that kids are living in it. And you just, you just can't do that with kids. You have to be responsible and sharing appropriate resources with them. Um, I think if I may, Jethro, one of the things I'd love to ask you about is, you know, to what extent are you starting to see ed tech companies present themselves as a moderator or filter of social media for precisely these reasons? Yeah, you know, you're starting to see some of that. And what's interesting is that some companies are trying to be social media for schools. And mm. um, interesting. And, and there's there's some interesting stuff there. But what, what you also have is a very real sector of um, ed tech companies that are about filtering, about preventing kids from seeing mm. certain things, about providing news to them in, in a little more sanitized way. Um, and there are several different options out there. Uh, there's one, for example, that will take a piece of news content and it will put uh, the information in that news content at different reading levels for each of each age group of kids, which is really a fascinating thing so that you can talk about current events, but do it in a way that kids can actually understand it. And so they, they reduce the, the reading level, the complexity of the sentences and the words so that it's easier for kids to digest and, and understand when they're just developing readers. And I think that that is, that's an important thing to do, um, but it also can take out some of the some of the concepts 
that may be too advanced for a child to understand the nuance of. And, mm. and I think that there is, there is wisdom in that as well. That's a really, really interesting idea, actually. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. All right. Well, anything else we should add on this one, Jethro? You know, last thing is really just um, there is some pedagogical benefit, but we do need to have care as we're doing it. And you mentioned that before, and I just want to want to end with that, that we need to think about what we're doing before we bring things into the classroom. You know, even if it's especially if it's social media, but even if it's something else, you just got to think about what you expose kids to intentionally in the classroom. That's a great way to wrap up. And then I would also reference just going out the door, this idea that if you as an educator are going to start using social media as a teaching tool, be mindful of some of the risks that can arise with respect to uh, disclosure of student information and the allure of fame and fortune coming out yeah. of you know being a viral presence on social media. Yeah. All righty. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this show. So please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. And we appreciate having you with us and look forward to seeing you on Thursday with Dr. Wendy Oliver. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.